our job as designers is to make things which answer problems for people in a really beautiful way that you're never going to get bored of, that function flawlessly and often over time reveal more about themselves to you. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. Today I'm talking to industrial designer Jay Osgerby. Jay is one half of the London-based, internationally recognized design power duo Barber and Osgerby. Jay met his partner, Edward Barber, while studying architecture at the Royal College of Art. They became fast friends and started working together straight away. You may remember Edward's story from episode 143. Now, over the course of 25 plus years, what began as a scrappy and resourceful startup by a pair of ambitious students has grown into a family of three design studios, including Universal, which focuses on architecture and interiors, Map Project Office, a strategy-based industrial design consultancy, and of course their award-winning namesake studio, Barber Osgerby, which focuses on art, product, and furniture. Under the banner of Barber Osgerby, they've designed and launched many notable projects, including the Tipton Chair and Softwork Seating for Vitra, the On and On Chair for Emico, and even the 2012 Olympic Torch. There are more awards, museum collections, and coffee table books than I have time to mention here, but I'll say this. After having spoken with both of them, their commitment to pushing the boundaries of experimentation and sustainability to create long-lasting, exceptional products, places, and experiences feels deeply genuine. And while it's a path that has included heartbreaking tragedy as well as exhilarating triumphs, Jay details how he navigated this uncharted territory with heartwarming candor, humor, and an unflagging optimism that will leave you smiling and hopeful. It's beautiful. Here's Jay. I'm Jay Osgaby. I work in London. Uh, well, actually, I work all over the place, but the studio is in London and I'm a designer. I'm not sure there's really anything else I could do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You just got railroaded into it because your skills and talents uh, left you no other options. <laughs> yeah, well, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think at school we did this thing where you um, kind of had to choose a career based on certain criteria. You had to fill out a form, and I think mine came out as a shepherd, my predicted career. So it's not so different, is it? No, it's not. And in fact, you know, as we as we continue to talk, maybe we can compare and contrast the job of a shepherd with the job of a designer. <laughs> So let's go all the way back to before 
you discovered that being a shepherd might be your in your future. All the way back to the beginning, I really love learning about the formative years because I think it helps me understand the person. So can you tell me about your childhood? I grew up in a small town about 12 miles west of Oxford, a town called Whitney, which, you know, is relatively small. And it was an old market town that had been built up over the years. It had become really well known for making blankets. But the history of it, I guess, was that it was a, you know, it had a river and it had sheep. Oh, here we go. We're actually back onto the shepherd thing. <laughs> Straight away. There we are. My mum is from the area. My dad was from Yorkshire. Both my parents were very young, actually, when I was born, by today's standards. Uh, interestingly, I think that my Ed and I often talk about this, actually, because I, my family managed to fit in an extra generation in the 20th century. So my grandmother was 20 when my mum was born, and my mum was 24 when I was born. So me and my grandparents were sort of almost, by today's standards, parents' age. They were pretty close to us, too. My mum's side were... So it was like we had a really nice extended family. So growing up really did feel family-centred. And um, I guess looking back, I was sort of trying to think about some of the influences of you know that came along with that. And I think the Second World War actually was a real shadow over our childhood. You know, my grandfather, in fact, all my grandparents had been involved in the Second World War, but my, both my grandparents had been really badly injured in the Second World War. You know, they were still there. You know, they were like in their 40s when I was growing up as a young child. And those stories and that history was ever present, really out of place as well, really out of context in this sort of small town to be thinking about those things. But they were, they were there nonetheless. And I think from a really early age, history was, you know, a really huge part of, of my life. Maybe it was partly a sort of method of escape, but it was certainly there. You were also one of three boys. That's right, yeah. We grew up in a small cottage in this sort of small town. And I guess the other thing is that a lot of our stories or our family stories were also derived from the fact that all our, a lot of our ancestors had been people who made stuff. So there was this kind of innate understanding about making, or at least, again, these sort of stories that families tell each other, the sort of stories that go around were, you know, about the Swiss side of our family, because we had the Swiss side and they were watchmakers and camera makers and my grandfather's family had been coachmakers, so they used to make handsome cabs and you know horse-drawn carts and that sort of thing and actually strangely a lot of this stuff from the family had ended up in our shed you know I remember finding paint and stencils and lettering things and compasses and all of these tools sort of in boxes in the shed that's like finding hidden treasure <laughs> yeah well it was a really happy byproduct of the sort of you know these narratives the spoken narratives were then sort of backed up with these you know this archaeology of family life that existed under dust hidden away you know that no one was really interested in apart from us and you know we grew up in the country uh, it was often raining and a rainy day in the 1970s really didn't mean much else other than trying to make stuff mess stuff around or break something you know it was like destruction yeah. or construction those were pretty much your options I think at that time <laughs> both great options both great options and I was lucky also that my mum was really interested my dad was a chef so he wasn't really around so much because he was either working at lunchtime or he wasn't around in the evening because he was working in the evening and my mum was has always been really fascinated you know by the arts any type of art form it didn't really matter it was was and remains really key to her and so on a rainy day, she'd stick us on a bus or take us to Oxford to go and look around the museums. Or So we'd go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which is fantastic. I think it's one of the first museums in the world. And, you know, and also Oxford University Museum, the Pitt Rivers Museum, where, you know, there's incredible 
anthropological things, objects from civilizations of antiquity and, you know, and from all around the world. And it was amazing. It was like escaping into Narnia. It's such a contrast as well, too, to country living, <laughs> to be able to get into what was then to us a huge city of Oxford, which is actually tiny. Where were you in the birth order? Were you the oldest or the youngest? Uh, I'm the oldest. Yeah, so I was born in 1969, so sort of shortly after the moon landings, I arrived. And then my brother Daniel was born in 73, and Theo was born in 76. So yeah, three of us all trying to find something to do on a rainy day. Pretty close together. Did you feel a kind of leadership or responsibility being the oldest, or did you contribute to their delinquency? <laughs> They did. They took care of that for themselves, actually, to be used pretty effectively. <laughs> I don't remember really feeling like that, actually, until I suppose until a bit later on when my my parents split up and divorced when I was, you know, in my early teens. I'm sure it's common with everybody who goes through it. You know, I think I did become a sort of bit of a parent figure. I I remember sort of feeling of need to try and control things and I don't know, try and maybe hold things together for my mum and for for everybody. I think yeah, that was a quite a big thing. So yeah, I did. Definitely fulfilled the kind of keep the wheels on. So that was when you were a teenager? Yeah, I think I was 14. That's sort of a big shift in the family dynamic. Did you feel like you had to, like you grew up a bit fast at that time? I'm not sure if I felt like I had to grow up. Interesting, isn't it, in retrospect, because you feel that you just take everything in your stride. You know, I've never really thought about it that much, but certainly I guess I did have to grow up. Yeah, I did. Did you... um remain close to both of your parents? Was the dynamic there amicable in such a way? Or did you have to also kind of experience some real discord? Yes and no. So I've always been very close with my mother, always, and that's never changed. And my dad, you know, sadly, he died this year, but I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not really sure I ever particularly understood him as a person. There were lots of things I loved about him. He was really good. He was a very cuddly dad. When he was around, he was very present. And when he wasn't around, he was definitely not there. I, yes, present and also very absent. Yeah, he did a really good job of absolute absence. <laughs> but even then, when you'd make the effort to try and see him, you know, he'd always tell you he loved you. And that, I don't know, it was there was a huge warmth from him. He taught me a lot about warmth, I think, in relationships. And so that, you know, that's a, an amazing thing. I think it's partly a byproduct of being a chef, to be honest. He became a big drinker you know, socialized a lot with his friends in the pub. It was a bit like Cheers. He was definitely on the at the bar, you know, <laughs> a lot more than he was at home anyway. He got on really well, actually, but it's just, it was a slightly odd relationship where I guess our relationship was more on a level, really, than him ever really being a dad figure, if that makes sense. It does. Do you ever look back on your childhood and sort of grieve the absent part? I don't know, actually, that's a good question. I think it's all too difficult to, I'm not, it's hard. I don't know. I think yes and no, because there were some obviously awful things, but there was a lot of it that made me the person I am, I suppose. And there, I think some of the resilience that came from those years stood me in good stead, I guess, to, to be independent um, and to always think independently, I think. It's a funny thing, actually, just touching on going back to the, the you know, thing I was saying before about the, the this kind of Second World War thing, which is, I know, a really odd thing to talk about. I think that my parents' generation actually were collateral damage of that war, of the Second World War. And I think my dad's sort of alcoholism and 
way he was was a byproduct of his own father's sort of PTSD and how he had been as a dad to him. So I think a lot of that stuff carried on. He, my, my dad's dad had been on in D-Day, you know, landing with the Allies in Normandy, and his, he was a tank commander, and his tank was blown up. So he was pretty seriously injured, and I just don't think it ever really left him. And my mum's dad, he actually landed in Italy with the Americans, you know, the Allied invasion of Italy in 43. And again, he had a rotten time and finished the Second World War not being able to speak because he was so shell-shocked. So these things, these sort of legacies, I think, continue. I don't know whether it's like a genetic memory for people or whether it's a sort of something else, but it was very present. I think it's both. I mean, I think the study of epigenetics would say that, you know, these kinds of traumas get, you know, marked in the DNA and then carried on. And then psychologically, unprocessed trauma comes out in the way that you parent and it affects the people around you and unprocessed trauma gets handed down until somebody finally processes it. Yeah, actually, that's a really good way of putting it. Maybe this is what we're doing right now. This is it. I, this is, I think we this are, is the processing. Jay. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Because I'm here to help. Yeah, it's a safe as long place. as you promise you don't make this into a podcast, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess what I was going to say, though, is I've, my childhood, when it wasn't raining, was actually idyllic in some ways because we were very free as kids. We were very free. We lived in the countryside. We were running around. We could, you know, my mum would basically turn us out in the morning. We'd come back for dinner in the evening and we were forever making things and bows and arrows and all sorts of things. And, you know, it was forever inspiring to be able at such a young age to feel like you can influence the the world around you through making, even if it's a camp or if it's a, a fantasy world that you make with your friends in the woods. You know, those those things were our everyday reality. It was very idyllic in that sense until of course you become a teenager well right teenage years upend everything but having the ability to develop that kind of creative agency over the material world in your youth i think really does foster a kind of confidence in your own resilience and your own survival and your own ability to have impact on the world which is is tremendous and i've i've also read and heard you say that your mom was very resourceful. She was. She was amazingly resourceful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to hear about your impressions of your of your mom and what she taught you about survival and creativity. So what happened was that, in fact, my dad's job, this is so going back to childhood a little bit more. My mum saw my dad, you know, working these silly hours and not really seeing the family very much as a chef. And so they decided to set up a business, a shop. So in 1977, I guess it would have been, my mum and dad decided to set, set up a health food store, right? Now, this was incredibly pioneering for the for the time. And uh, so in this very small town that we lived in, we opened a, a shop and my dad gave up being a chef and the pair of them really went ahead and started this business. And that was really interesting as a child because to your point about agency, you saw your parents taking control of their life, actually, and yeah. creating something. And actually, we would drove around to sort of antique sales and so on and auctions and things and found bits and bobs for the shop. I remember them buying a, an old pharmacy uh, cabinet, which had hundreds of drawers in it you know, with, with little crystal glass uh, oh, draw pulls. Cool. And instead of having the pharmacy stuff in there, they re my dad relabeled everything up and uh, you know it had the herbs and spices in it and so on and I don't know it was really exciting this this thing about changing the world you know actually as a child to see your parents doing something entrepreneurial was was amazing 
other examples of my mum doing stuff was um, the local cinema closed down and somehow or other, my, I think it was my dad actually got hold of the curtains from the cinema screen from, from the theatre and brought them home and my mum then converted... Enormous drapey yeah, curtains. Really that, massive. You know, oh, wow. They've probably been in there since 1910 or something. So they were, must have been reeked of cigarette and pipe smoke <laughs> and so on. Probably yeah. gross. But she, she ran them up and made them into curtains for the house. So we had these, we, we had these very dramatic cinema curtains at home. But that was an example, you know, an example of what life was really like. You know, we, we're a family of sort of skip twitchers. You know, you can't walk past a skip. I don't know if a skip is what you say in america you know the things no, that build, no builders what you're put, talking about okay so you know the big things that go on the street that the builders put junk in before they get taken away oh dumpster a dumpster yeah so we're a family of dumpster dwellers really uh, okay gotcha. so we're literally there it's like oh that's a decent piece of wood or oh that's interesting you know so that's how it was and i guess you know we were the make do and mend bunch really i mean we didn't have really very much money at all so we really did create things from nothing and, and whether it was a business or whether it was a piece of furniture that my dad made you know we were forever seemingly anyway looking back it felt forever that we were we were making or constructing or, or trying to to do something like that I learned two things then really I think one this idea that you can do something for yourself you know that you can actually set up your own thing and it can work and the other thing is adapting the world around you to make objects which then suit that notion or that business idea or that you know that venture and so I suppose as an adult all of that influence has flown directly into what you know what we do today. I think I'll add a third thing is that um, that layering of history that comes from the multi-generations you know of your grandparents and your parents and the layering of history that comes from repurposing an apothecary cabinet or cinema curtains into your home, it adds a kind of contextual richness that objects can provide, doesn't it? It does. It completely does. It was also a really interesting time to be a child, I think, in the 70s, because there was nothing boring about design at that, in that period. You know, I mean, of course, in Italy, there were amazing things happening. In fact, there were amazing things happening in design everywhere. And as a child, I wasn't really aware of that. But still, my parents were, there was history and, and art history and design history, even to the extent that we had William Morris wallpaper. And, you know, I remember my mum reupholstering the sofa and William Morris print. And there was definitely a look going on. Lots of plants, white, white walls, dark floors, William Morris stuff. It was kind of, it's all going on down there. I mean, it was not exactly Italy, but, you know, I'll settle for something at least. <laughs> so how do we get to the point where you took a test that told you you should be a shepherd, but you <laughs> actually went to RCA to become an architect? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, well, it's not, not, not so unrelated. No, so what happened for me was the idyllic childhood, you know, and tinkering around outside was wonderful. And then I think I actually got a job um, one of my, I think it's probably my first job in my great uncle's newsagent store, or you know, that sold magazines and stuff at the end of our road. And I had a Saturday, early morning Saturday job and an early morning Sunday job in there. And it was at the time when there was a, a sort of renaissance, I think, in design publications, but also in you know music and um, uh, things like the Face magazine came out, Arena was out, Blueprint magazine came out. 
all of this sort of visual input and also the music that was sort of around in, at that period and even things like MTV starting and this idea of music and design and video suddenly just felt like the bright lights that was drawing me somewhere else. And I managed to persuade my uncle, I think, to subscribe the shop, this really crap small shop to get blueprint magazine in and i knew nobody would buy it but he got them in and i then i i remember reading them you know in my tea break and stuff and thinking my god this is so exciting i've got to get to london i've got to be part of this world you know this architecture and design and it was really that urgency that made me decide to study a foundation course so i always knew i was going to do something in the creative arts i mean my mum would have not let me really do anything else. But luckily, I also wanted to really do it. I knew I was going to stay on at school. I knew I was going to do A-levels. So I did. I studied art and ceramics, design and economics. Strange mix for A-level, but I did that for A-level. Kind of, kind of handy, really, in retrospect. Yeah, then I went to Oxford Polytechnic, as it was then. It's now Oxford Brookes University, to um, study what's called a foundation course, which is this thing that we do here for one year between school and university where you dabble in all sort of different sorts of arts and it's amazing i've heard i believe it was edward who talked about this foundation yeah. course it sounds amazing i want to do one every year <laughs> me too me too it's really my daughter's just started doing one actually in camberwell college so yeah i'm really jealous and every day she comes back in i'm asking her what she's doing and I actually secretly wish i could go in there and go myself but it's <laughs> yes. amazing you know it's like um it's such an intense period of time where you study fine art, fashion design, photography, ceramics, industrial design. During that course, I think I really fell for industrial design, actually. I really liked the idea of being able to make things which were useful and actually make a lot of them so that it could be useful for many people. I actually really like the challenge that came along with engineering. I mean, I like the idea that it's beyond sculpture. I would have also been really happy to have studied sculpture or fine art because it or photography, actually, because I loved all of them equally. But there was something about problem solving that I really enjoyed, that aspect of design that particularly drew me to it, actually. I don't know what that's all about, but I've always liked trying to solve problems, you know, as part of the process. It's sort of, it's like something that you can get to and be happy about before you continue to the other parts. Part of the thing I enjoyed as a child in the sort of tinkering shed garage part was the making something from things which already exist and putting them together and seeing what you can create with that. I'm not quite sure what that tells us about the foundation, but anyway, from foundation, I looked at all the universities who offered industrial design and furniture design, and I decided to go to Ravensbourne College, which at the time uh, was, and still is actually, one of the best colleges in the UK. I absolutely fell in love with the workshops they had there. You know, I could just see these big machines, these sort of huge lathes and pillar drills and I, I just thought Christ I could literally do anything in there give me three years and I can make anything in there and I <laughs> that's what I want that's kind of what I did so I applied and got in and I loved the place wow it was great it was really really fun the leaving home bit wasn't that wasn't the fun bit really but being somewhere new being surrounded by hundreds of people you know kids of the same age who all wanted to do something in that creative world you know was really inspiring being able to get your hands on the machinery was wonderful to make things. Oh, yeah. And not only that, but it's your job to to explore, to experiment, to make things. 
that's what you're charged with while you're in school. So you find your tribe, you got the machines, and your job is to do, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, go to town. And this was your undergrad. Yeah, so this would have been 19, 1989, 1990, I think. I started there. And it was a really exciting time to be in London as well. The music scene was really great. The clubs were really, really fun. There was a lot of really interesting things happening. So it felt really vibrant. But all of that, I guess, is set against, you know, the end of what was that, I guess, known as the, at the time as sort of Thatcher's Britain. So it was London was also felt very poor at this point to me anyway, coming from the countryside, coming to London, there were so many homeless people. It didn't feel like everything was going well for everybody, but there, somehow there was this layer of creativity that had burst through. And uh, we were all part of that too, which again was really exciting. And I've, you know, made friends with people then who remain friends today. And it was such a formative time. I remember just how difficult it was to, f- to know whether you were doing the right thing or the wrong thing. That, at that age, in your early 20s, when you're, you're so excited about something, but you're, you're also questioning it so much, and you do question if the work that you're doing is good. Who knows? It seems so subjective. And you're sort of desperately trying to create your own rules by which to work. So, yeah, that was challenging. That's a time when you're also really filtering everything that you're learning through your own sort of manner of expression as well. And there's this question of how much ego or non-ego is important. Like if you erase all of your own personality from the work, then it becomes inhuman. But if you put too much importance on your expression, then it becomes very either egotistical or sculptural. Yeah, it's true. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it depends whether you feel that what the work that you're doing is actually serving others or whether it's serving yourself. For our generation, being at school then, you know, the biggest and most famous person at the time was obviously Philippe Stark. Mm-hmm. And of course, all, everything that he did was so imbued with his own personality, it was inescapable. You know, we were possibly thinking that that was the role model. But actually, when I was at college, I was taught by some really, really great people really interesting people who were actually the antithesis of that, who were really old school, you know, and one guy who'd worked with Dieter Rams was, you know, in the studio and they, you know, they really did brought us back down to, to earth, I think, <laughs> you know, and, and I think really t- sort of helped ingrain certain values in the studio or in the design group, which kind of became quite long lasting things for us all, you know, some of which Whilst I don't subscribe to all of the principles, you know, I think are fundamental to what what our practice is today, I suppose, in some ways. But anyway, you don't really know that when you're 21. And anyway, all you want to do is really get to the student bar. I actually spent a period of, of my study in Paris on an exchange. So that was another sort of close as you can get to Philippe Stark at that period was actually then because he was teaching at this college that I was at in, in Paris called Les Ateliers. And I studied there for, a, I think it was sort of five or six months. And that was fascinating. And again, I was super out of my comfort zone because I had sort of a certain level of French. I thought I spoke French anyway, put it that way, <laughs> till I got there. And I just people just looked at me blankly as I asked for a baguette or whatever it was. <laughs> it's pretty hopeless. So I had a crash course in French and, and I think a lesson in personal resilience, I suppose, because, you know, it wasn't easy. It really wasn't easy. I was on my own there. I was the only one. I was the only student that went to Paris and it was quite tough. But again, really inspiring and you, I'm sure, um, you know, plunking yourself out of your comfort zone like that and managing not only to get through it, but to thrive through it also expands your own sense of what you're capable of. And 
what kinds of experiences you might pull yourself toward because you've got a few under your belt now that were quite challenging, but you you made it through. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually look back and they always say, you know, terrible times, great stories and all of that stuff and all of those things are so true, you know, like, and also I, in a way I kind of had that sort of classic through history experience of Paris. You know, I lived on the eighth floor uh, of an apartment block in uh, Rue Mira, which is in the 18th arrondissement. And at the time it was pretty much as rough as you could get in Paris. And my flat, you know, classically, you know, I had to move out for two days so that it could be fumigated because it had a flea <laughs> infestation. Oh, dear. And, you know, it was so it was just brilliant, really, when you think back. And I used to walk <laughs> yeah. to college because it was cheaper than going to the metro. And then I literally would get a baguette and on the way to school. And that was, you know, was kind of living the dream but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect. But at the time, it was pretty challenging. It was good. And I, I guess then coming back to Ravensbourne, that would have been the end of the second year. I just, you know, got my head down for the last nine months of study and it's at that point that you have to decide what you're going to do next so I went to see my tutors and I was doing pretty well actually at this point things were going quite well at college and I said look what should I do next Um, I'm thinking of going to the Royal College of Art and my tutor sat me down and said listen I I don't think now is the time to go to do furniture at the Royal College I didn't really question why because you don't do you and I said oh okay I won't do that then he said so I think you should consider going to Domus Academy in, in Milan. I was like, well, which sounded, of course, fantastic, but I had no money. I was completely skinned. So that just wasn't an option for me. And so I decided to do something completely different. And in the holidays from school, I'd been from university. I'd been working with a friend back up in Oxford, sort of designing and building restaurants. And I'd actually loved that process of hands-on making a space uh you know from sort of having the keys to the site to sort of getting the coffee machine going in the end and serving coffees and and I'd loved that the excitement of transformation and so I thought well maybe I should study architecture maybe I should try and get to the RCA to do architecture and, and interior so I I went to see the tutor at the RCA before actually applying and had a meeting with them which is incredibly ballsy I suppose in retrospect I don't think it must have been quite a tough decision to do that so nice of them to see me so they did see me and I had a chat and I said look I'm you know I've done furniture and industrial design but I'd really quite like to change to do architecture and interiors like everybody else had to submit my portfolio of work and unbelievably I actually got a place on the course they apparently said that they thought I'd be really an asset for the course because of my attention to detail those are the words they said and how wrong wrong they could be but um Well, well, sort of starts the next chapter, I suppose. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. 
Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I want to back up and ask a follow-up question. Designing and building a restaurant, I'm right there with you on the enjoying the whole like transformation from beginning all the way through to yeah, getting the coffee machine up and running and making that first hot coffee. But did you also connect back to your your dad as a chef in any way when you're thinking about the restaurant and the and the workspace of a chef? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing that did happen. Once we'd finished the place, so one summer holiday, I think it was the last one between Ravensbourne and the Royal College, I did actually come back and say, sort of, sort of saw my friend and said, look, is there any, have you got any projects going this summer? Because it'd be great to work on another project. And I'm going to the RCA to study interiors and architecture now because of you. How about it? And he's like, well, no, I'm afraid we finished everything. But if you want to get a couple of shifts in the kitchen, you can. So, yeah, I did give that a go. And I have to say it was the most horrendous thing. <laughs> I could <laughs> never be a chef. Because what you're sitting, you know, you're in there and these sort of orders are coming through. It's like the antithesis of what I do, which is everything I've done since college has been sort of self-determination, setting up businesses, growing businesses, designing things. But no one's really telling me what to do. But suddenly when you're in the kitchen, I mean, you're literally just, you're just order after order after order came in. And I was like, oh, my God, how did my dad ever do this? It's no wonder he took to the, took to the beer. <laughs> so I guess there was that learning. Yeah, it's it's stressful. I mean, I think there is the creativity of, you know, developing recipes. But other than that, it's a very conditional kind of situation where you have to be on high alert. Um, That's what and, it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That. It is. It's an adrenaline thing from start of the shift to the end of the shift. And, and you know, like, I'm sure you've worked in restaurants at the end of your shift. You, the last thing you want to do is go to sleep. You need to have a beer to wind down, don't you? You need to yeah. you need that moment just to, to let it all go. So I ended up getting a few shifts in there, and I was the re- that was a reminder why, as well as never being a shepherd, I should also never work in a kitchen. <laughs> so then we started RCA in the architecture department, and the fateful meeting with your, your friend Edward that has lasted for 25-plus years. I think coming back to, you know, the whole thing of having brothers, you know, he, he was one of three as well, and I'm pretty sure that our relationship was a fraternal relationship. Because, you know, we both clicked in that way. And the way that we work, the way that our personalities are, the way that we tackle things, I don't know, seemed to be in a seam- seamlessly worked. And, uh, you know, as we started, I mean, I know you've spoken to Ed, obviously, about, <laughs> about yeah. this. So, I mean, I, I guess I, it's my responsibility to tell the true story now, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we met, I think it was the first couple of days, and we became friends. Uh, we became critics of the course, of course, as you do, because you always know best when you're that age. Oh, yeah. Your b- rebellious streak is just getting started. It's really important to nurture that. And I think we were both fiercely ambitious. I think we, we certainly were. And I think we were both really full of excitement and nerves about and apprehension about what the college would offer. I think we both felt that we needed more than we, we were getting out of the course at the time. Ed spent a number of months down in the photography department and I moved down to furniture for some of the time. And we, you know, we were sort of jostling around trying to find, trying to make it work, you know, like get the engine started. What, you know, what was the thing that was going to really energize us and really make things happen? And we, so that's why we were sort of seeking collaborators and we were working throughout the college in different departments and 
you know, coincidentally and by chance, I again, I was I was working at, uh, on a Saturday, I think, and after college, and one night a week, and in Bavendum, the Oyster Bar in South Kensington, which at the time was like the place in London where everybody kind of went, the celebrities and people who, the movers and shakers of the city, the people who were really making the city happen were sort of eating and drinking here, which is always one of the best bits of advice I think I ever heard was, if you want to get ahead, get a job in the best restaurant in town, because you just meet those people. Oh, that is good advice. It's super good advice, right? So that actually pretty much happened. I worked at a divey pool hall, and now I'm thinking I wasted those years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. And I mean, I spent way too long in the wrong kitchen in Oxford, which got me absolutely nowhere. So I was lucky to land on my feet in this gig, I tell you. One Saturday, I met these two guys who, they, they stuck out. They're really curious people. They were pretty young. They were in their 20s. They were very flashy. I just sort of thought, I think they were interesting. They can't figure them out. They don't really belong here. So I'll just go and chat to them. So, I, you know, I was waiting at their table and I just struck up a conversation and sort of asked them what they're up to. And they were looking at a site to do a project on the other side of the road from this restaurant that I was working in. And I said, oh, well, actually, I'm studying. I just gave them a sales pitch. There you go. That was, I was like my waiter elevator pitch. I'm studying <laughs> architecture and interiors up the road at the Royal College of Art. If you'd like any help designing your new project, let me know. They said, yeah, why don't you bring down your portfolio and we'll have a meeting. So basically after that shift, I like ripped off my apron and ran back up to college. (laughs) Yeah. Found Ed and said, Ed, I think we've got a project. Do you fancy it? And he was like, damn right. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of how it started in a way. He and I just winging it with these these guys who turned out to be complete gangsters. (laughs) And um, there's a whole long story there. But we spent the next year juggling college life and this other side this sort of dark side of london underworld actually working with these guys building things you know again but and uh, you know i moved into ed's flat i slept on the floor in his sitting room and we were you know we had our drawing boards up at the table and we just worked day day and night we worked so hard to deliver this project and it was in that period that that time that we not only learned our trade but we learn how to collaborate not just with manufacturers and builders and clients but also with one another and that was in a way the most important period of my life for for learning how to work oh i totally believe that because it sounds high stress but also very adventurous and exciting and then you have just you know, enough naivete to get yourself in over your head, which means you have to figure out how to make it work with Ed, too. You have to you have to sort out how do we figure out which ideas to elaborate on and to go forward with? And how do we figure out who's got strengths and weaknesses and how we work with with those to make this all come together? And then also, how do we mend any rifts or fractures or sprains that happen that need to be healed over exactly yeah it was an incredibly tough period for i think both of us i think we were both in a way we when the project ended i it almost felt like we came out of the ground rubbing our eyes you know like <laughs> oh what's happened the year the year has passed <laughs> Yeah. Like like moles coming out of the ground. And we realized that we would go out for a beer. I remember him, he and I going out for a drink and just sitting there and not really saying anything because we 
didn't have anything to say because we were so just exhausted and stunned. Anyway, <laughs> but it was an amazing, an amazing thing. And whilst it was problematic at college because we were juggling both things, we got into trouble at college and pretty much. Well, I think we both had exit interviews. I think they both they tried to throw us both out because they didn't really understand what we were doing. We survived and we graduated, and we also made a lot of good friends at the RCA and. What I love about the RCA, what I love about art school generally, actually, is the fact that you have these people who are specialists in their respective fields working closely together. And, you know, you've got a sewing machine on one floor, you've got a drawing board or a kiln on the other floor, or someone's blowing glass, someone's pattern cutting, someone's developing a photo. And I just love that sort of crucible of creation that happens there. And I think possibly one of the most that's another really important thing because i think ed and i've continued to almost try and replicate that those environments as we've gone into professional practice and really embracing this idea of multidisciplinary work i mean that came through in my interview with ed but that also came through right now as you were describing what you loved about rca i was like oh yeah that's why your life now (laughs) looks like that (laughs) yeah I'm sure you must find the same way, you know, where you are. It's like, there's nothing more exciting than that kind of getting lost in the corridor and actually coming out into somebody else's department and thinking, Hey, well, I could do that with this. Or I didn't know you could do that here. Or those moments of excitement never, never, ever gone. They're all connected with this idea of making or this idea of creation. I, I like the object or the environment or the thing that you actually hold in your hand or that you can experience. That's the joy. That's my thing, too. And I've tried to figure out why it is that I love it so much. And and the thing that I kind of come back to is it's by extension, it's my way of forming a direct relationship with the person who's in the space or using the the thing. It's a way of reaching out and touching them without being inappropriate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I I understand what you mean. Yeah, it's a a connection. It's actually really interesting. When it still takes me by surprise, honestly, if somebody says, I've got one of your lamps from Floss. I, you know, I love it or my kids love it or it looks great here in the house. And I'm always like, well, you actually bought my stuff. (laughs) I almost, it's almost like you get still now. I still get slightly caught off guard when people have one of, you know, something that Ed and I have made. It's, it's a funny feeling. Yeah. I mean, they're a little bit like, offspring in a way or or seeds from a tree that sort of go out into the world and they are aren't they and like offspring you have to make sure they don't go wrong yes you do (laughs) (laughs) yes you do occasionally do no but generally i it's an amazing feeling to do that anyway so i you know i'm thinking 25 years you you founded barbara osgerby in 1996 with edward barber and 25 years later i'm wondering how the studio has changed i know you've branched out into universal and map and we can talk about those but there have also been i'm sure pivotal projects and challenges and moments of expansion and contraction yeah where do i start it has been amazing yeah one thing that struck me about your relationship with Ed is that you said it was fraternal. And so there's like a familial energy between you. And I'm wondering if the the other people that have formed your studio family, how you and Ed have negotiated those relationships and fostered the growth of the studio family and kept things fraternal all these years. A lot of the early days you know, we, we really relied on people who we kind of knew. I mean, Ed and I both taught 
we did we've both done lots of teaching actually over the years and you know so in some ways actually some of the early early people who joined the team i suppose were people that we'd met at college or we had actually taught yeah so that was that's kind of how we staffed up at the beginning i suppose people we knew people whose work we really liked people who we could trust people who were up for joining us as well let's not forget because you know we stood for nothing and had nothing at the beginning and apart from i guess our energy and our and our desire to do something something important or something great or or even just to keep going i suppose so we were lucky that we had those people so it's probably worth recapping for our listeners it was pretty much a scrappy startup neither one of you went to work for anyone else professionally you took that job with the gangsters and spiraled it into your own <laughs> thing yeah, kind of kind of yeah we did we left college we graduated in the sort of early mid 90s and there was not a lot of work around london was a little bit quiet and we were fortunate enough to based on some of the work that we'd done at college some of the real work we were actually able to to get kind of few, a few projects here and there some some restaurants some some houses yeah we started designing furniture and products for those projects because we actually wanted to do the ultimate thing which was to you know create everything within the space so the, from the door handle to the chair to to all of those things and the, in those early days we you know we were lucky that we had with us on our team you know we had makers we had architects we had a couple of people talking about fraternal had also also had my brother who had just graduated so he came to work for us relatively early on which one the little one theo youngest one so he worked for us for for quite a long time and then the studio grew and yeah we got to this point actually where people were being quite confused about what we what we were you know because we mm-hmm. we had this sort of hybrid studio of furniture and architecture and interiors and back then it was so stressed that you specialized that yeah, um, yeah i'm sure it was, it was really confusing weird. to people I, I guess we were really focused on doing good work and what we should do next but outwardly it was a bit confusing so in 2000 and one we decided to break away the architecture and interiors side of our business of barbaroscopy and we changed its name to universal design studio so effectively started a completely new company who were really responsible for those collaborations which meant that the work that we're doing was no longer authored and by that i mean you know the work that barbaroscopy does is very much ed and Meyer's vision of how the world should be mm-hmm. when you get into architecture and interiors very often there's a very powerful client body or person or brand who wants to have their own mark on the project naturally so what we did is we sort of extended our studio to become a place where we invited collaboration from other people to come in and work with us work with the team to to sort of imbue the project with their own direction too and their own sense of how things should be. So early on, we worked with Damien Hurst on the pharmacy restaurant. We worked with Stella McCartney. Yeah, that's, that's a huge project. This is all amazing. And it's from an entrepreneurial perspective or just from a creative perspective. It's brilliant too, because you're inviting in that creative energy from other really fascinating people and working with them. So you're allowing a kind of collaboration that might not be as 
available to you under the Barbara Oscarby heading. Yeah, that's right, because we are ultimately we're control freaks when it comes to our own work. You know, I mean, we we have a very very clear vision of how a thing should be, how a thing should be made, how it should feel in your hand or to sit on, or you know, and it's very hard to leave that behind unless you create a different space that's specially designed to enable those collaborations and those kind of cross-fertilizations and polarizations to come to the fore. And that's kind of what Universal started to do and does today. You know, 20 years on, Universal is about to, Feidner about to publish a book on the last 20 years of Universal, which is, it feels really amazing, to be honest, because, you know, we've done a couple of Barbara Oscarby books, but then for, for it to be recognized as a sort of significant studio globally is also quite exciting, really. How fast did you grow in terms of personnel? really slowly yeah i mean it wasn't exactly a meteoric rise i mean in retrospect everything seemed to happen really quickly because we're looking back through 25 years of time but well 20 years you know and you like like all these things you know when you look back things stack up like they're really next to one another but of course they're not we were probably five or six people for the first couple of years and then by the mid 2000s i guess we were probably at 20 something like that you know then universal sort of went up to 70 people i think over the over the sort of twenty year period, how do you manage your energy between all three? What's your leadership style? It it seems like when you have three different distinct offices under one umbrella, and you participate in all three of them. I ought to say a little bit more about Map, I suppose, because Map, a bit like Universal, after twenty twelve when we did the Olympic torch for London, we anticipated that we'd get a lot of. Uh, interest from companies who perhaps might want slightly more technical work, maybe something which was more technology-based. It was the idea that we could capture some of the work that we'd been doing until that point with some of the Japanese brands like Panasonic, Sony, and those people were, again, a little bit like Universal. We knew we needed to create a space to let them in as well so that they could also influence and be part of our process. So 10 years ago, we started MAP. So the idea with MAP, MAP Project Office, was that it would, you know, look after sort of the strategic industrial design side. So again, so we've sort of, Barbara Oscarby in a way has given birth to these two other companies, Universal for Architecture and Interior Design, and MAP for Technology and Strategic Industrial Design. And so, yeah, we have three. Wait a second. That's three brothers. Barbara Osgrove, oh, yeah. Universal, and Map. It Whoa. is. There's no way we could have a fourth. It just wouldn't make sense to either of us. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. God, you're deep. I can see through you. You and can. I, I love all of it. It's such. Yeah, it is. Well, there you go. So we've got these three, three, three entities. God, it's like uh, it's getting religious now, isn't it? It's like the the, the Holy Trinity. <laughs> The leadership thing is really quite simple, and that is that's something that we've always thought of, which is always hire people who are better than you at whatever it is you need them to do. And simply, uh, you know, Ed and I aren't the type of people who are cut out for leading entrepreneurial entities on into the horizon. You know, it's not really our thing. We're really good at getting things moving and and I think starting things and inspiring. But I think, you know, we really rely on others to take the baton, and that's what we've done in the past and continue to do today with those with Universal and MAP. So they're run and led by really brilliant people who do a much better job than we would have done. I'm really happy to hear you say that because you've also self-professed to be control freaks when it comes to 
Barbara Osgerby, but it, it sounds like you have a healthy understanding of like where being a control freak is actually productive and where it can be counterproductive. To be honest, I don't think we are control freaks, really. Maybe we are, I don't know. Did you ask Ed that? I mean, he might say we were, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I can understand why you would have to be extremely particular about, you know, what's coming out under the Barbara Osgerby name, whereas you'd have to be more collaborative with Universal and MAP. But I'm also seeing that your fraternal relationship with each other and being one of three boys, you probably have a comfort level with sharing ownership. I think that's part of our process. It, it really is. I think when at Barbara Oscarby, it's not just Ed and I who design things or whilst we're always there at the beginning of a project, we rely and enjoy the process of working with our team. That's why we have them. They're not just here to expedite projects. You know, they, they enrich the process and the conversation. The people who we've worked with over the years have been absolutely fundamental to the studio and a lot of the seismic shifts that have happened over the years have been because of those people who have been with us. Can you tell me about some of those seismic shifts? In terms of critical moments of the studio for me, obviously I told you that Theo worked for us, my little brother, and he suddenly, unfortunately, and really very sadly, died. He passed away when we were working. In fact, Ed and I were in America at the time. Oh my goodness. We were at ICFF doing the furniture fair. Ed and I had been commissioned to design the the sort of main press area or the middle of the atrium. I remember that. What year was this? Uh, 2005. Yeah, I had a call from home saying that Thea had died. And amazingly, Ed was there, of course. And we managed to get on a plane straight away to come home. And no one really knew anything about why it had happened. He was only 29, and he, oh he, was, he was one of the key people in the studio for us. He was our brilliant model maker and very popular in the studio. And So in terms of pivotal moments in, of people, and that was certainly one of them. Wow. Not only tragic to have his life cut so short, but f- for it to be so sudden yeah, and it was. Mis- mysterious. The, the whole situation is shocking. So when you're told something like that, I remember Ed, sort of waving down taxis outside the Javits Centre. And then, you know, going back to the hotel to pick up stuff and then getting to the airport. And that journey, you know, the journey from the hotel to JFK literally felt like three weeks. I I'm mean, sure. It's so strange that what happens to your brain when, when you're struck with that sort of level of shock. And then we got home and, and I think it was really strange, actually, because the whole studio had been put into complete turmoil because people had thought it, maybe it was meningitis or something because it was so sudden. And um, so then people were having jabs and I don't know, I can't exactly remember because the whole thing was a bit of a blur. But, you know, obviously it was devastating for me and personally and, of course, obviously my family and he had a 10-year-old daughter. So the whole thing was just absolutely dreadful but I actually didn't really know what was going on in the studio of course because I was at home looking after my family and then when we went to the um I think a week later or a week two weeks later and I hadn't been back to work since and we had his funeral on I remember and it was up in Oxfordshire and it was it was an amazingly hot sunny day and I just remember that the, you know the almost the entire studio well more than the entire studio felt like hundreds of people walking up this kind of through this tiny little village to come to see him see him off you know all his friends and yeah it was amazing gosh that's one of those really bittersweet moments when you get to absorb the gravity of how loved he was and also the sorrow of 
how gone he is. Yeah, it was truly, truly shocking. And I think it had a real effect on everybody. I mean, obviously the family and me, but the studio too. And I felt for a while after, for a long time after actually, that all the people who were around that at that time when it, when it happened became so close to one another and the whole studio felt very, very close, like the family. When you grieve together, it, it does bring you closer together. And I think it also serves as a, a powerful reminder of just how precious and fragile life is. And there is a, a human tendency to want to care for each other, you know, with that empathetic understanding that everybody is hurting, brings out a kind of generosity and and caretaking that can galvanize you. Yeah, I think it did. And I think it had a huge effect on everyone's relationships. It was such a big gap left in the studio after he left. He was a really quiet guy. You know, he was six years younger than me and he was very quiet and incredibly talented. I don't know, he was just one of those people who's really wise in their quietness, if you know what I mean. I do, old soul. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. It was flipping terrible, really. But the effect, I think, on me was, I think until that point, really, I became less accommodating. In a way, I think I spent a lot of my early life being incredibly accommodating in lots of situations and always flexing and being adaptable to the situation. And I think with Theo's passing, that... It sort of changed things for me because I saw things in, in a slightly different way. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I think I think I saw that you know things had to happen that there was a real imperative for things to happen if you believed in them because that horrible expression life's too short and you never really know what's around the corner and then somehow you it gave me a, a determination I didn't have before then I think to make things work and it in a way it became the accelerant and or the the accelerator in in our studio to some extent to make things better and I don't know whether you ever believe in that thing that when people have gone that somehow they're out there looking out for you and that they're sort of trying to stack fate in in the right way for you but certainly I think I, I'm speaking for Ed but I also you know I'm pretty sure both of us felt that he was out there in some to some extent trying to make things work for, for everybody in our life and it really did have that effect at work whether it was Theo pulling strings up up there or whether it was just us having this kind of feeling that we really really had to get on with it and it wasn't just a hobby this is something that we really needed to do and that's what happened you know suddenly actually felt relatively sudden things did accelerate projects 
some i mean i don't want to just relate it to work but it just seemed that things changed and i don't know why that was that is really interesting it can also be a combination of of a lot of things but also that that clarity that you mentioned that whereas before you may have been accommodating because so many versions of the truth were worthy of your attention or being entertained but then with this newfound sort of clarity or imperative it was more clear to you which ones deserved action and energy and effort and the other stuff's just sort of fell by the wayside and and with that kind of i think clarity of intention things do start to feel like they're falling into place in a way yeah i think you're right i think there's something quite interesting about grief as well that you never really shake and it sort of it really does change you permanently i think it's not all bad either i think that that sort of thing about when you as a human when you start you know you could be anything so you're a block of stone for example and then as you go through life you know you get shaped by your experience sculpted and something when you have something that's like grief come to you it's like suddenly you're hit with a sledgehammer and a big bit comes off but it gives you another facet which you didn't know was there before and it's through that that you see the world i think in a different way not necessarily a bad way but it just gives you another it's almost like another perspective that's a really beautiful way of putting it so that was that i guess <laughs> wow and that was 2005 2005 so. yeah that's right and um i think actually it was another thing that you know really brought me and ed closer together as well because you know i think obviously he was really good friends with ed as well um as as well as being my brother and i think both of us sort of in our shared grief i think it was another thing that sort of helped galvanize our partnership i suppose in some ways not that it particularly needed it because we were already working really well together but it was just another layer you know yeah well i mean you really are family now there's there's no (laughs) yeah there's no escaping is there as hard as we try (laughs) we can't get away with it so how was the pandemic for you because the grief of the loss of your brother being able to grieve together and care for each other is galvanizing but the pandemic had a really strange quality to it where we all had to go deal with it on our own sort of or through screens i guess what i'm wondering is if your team that feels like family if you are able to be family for each other also through this weird context where you had to be separate the whole thing was just incredible wasn't it from the beginning of it i was definitely a kind of like this isn't going to come to anything type of a person at the beginning i was the opposite of the people who were waving around going this is the end of the world we all got to run and hide (laughs) i was like nah it's fine i had a trip booked to san fran and i was like i'm getting on that flight i don't care you know you know then you know come i think it was like the thursday and then out of the window in shoreditch we could see people putting their computers into the back of taxis and they're like sure okay we're all going home you know this is really closing in and at that moment you sort of it's almost switches into this horror film sort of thing doesn't it of yeah stand you know control your panic think about what we're going to do and then sure we we all, we all did the same you know we took our computers home we worked from home well actually i got covid pretty much straight away that's i forgot about that so the first thing is so we got our laptops home we were sort of home working and then i remember we were pitching for a project actually on the monday and on tuesday i felt absolutely terrible and I, the next thing I know is I'm sort of in bed really for two weeks with, had COVID straight away, right at the beginning, around the same time as Boris, actually. 
I didn't get it from him, I must say. I must <laughs> stress. I was definitely not getting COVID from Boris. I got it from my daughter, I think, who'd just come back from a skiing trip to, I think they were in Austria. Yeah. So that pretty much the whole of Southeast London's kids came back. Well, actually, most of London's kids came back from their sort of half-term skiing trip full of COVID and then promptly took out most of the secondary education system in London and all the parents. <laughs> so that was that. And then in terms of the work itself, it was surprisingly okay. We got through things and we actually felt that things were going pretty well. You know, we, I don't think either of us particularly missed the traveling at the beginning because Ed and I travel an awful lot, like fly somewhere every couple of weeks, if not twice a week sometimes. So we weren't really missing that. And we did feel like we were getting through things. And in retrospect, though, I think we were really good at problem solving and not so good at, at creating because, you know, I think one of the things that we like most about the process is having everyone in the room and actually, you know, that moment when there's an idea that's kindled, that's then floating around in the room and people's excitement make it happen, really give birth to it and make it and nurture it. And then it goes to the workshop and then it happens. Someone makes a model or, or a sketch model and then it comes up and it's like really growing as an idea. And It's sort of like COVID. It spreads like an infection, um, yeah, but a good yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, a really good version of COVID, exactly. That. <laughs> yeah, it's like the best type. <laughs> and we we really missed that throughout the lockdown. We really, really pushed as hard as we could to try and get back in in small groups and rekindle that work. We've actually managed to keep most of the projects from pre-COVID still, you know, still happening, still out there. And, you know, things are coming out and being launched soon, in fact. Well, it sounds like you are navigating the pandemic with aplomb and you, you're going to be okay. Things are, honestly, they feel like they're back to normal here in the studio, London is has the lowest rates of COVID in the UK at the moment. It feels honestly feels back to normal, which is not uh, it's a relief, but it's also exciting, you know, because people are out. There's energy again, like there's optimism. People are talking about holidays, and you know, there was this such a heavy cloud, wasn't there, of doom and gloom? And it was, of course, absolutely horrendous, absolutely horrendous. But I'm so happy that you know that there is optimism in the air again, and that you know that life is returning to some sort of normal, whether it's the new normal or whether it's a, the same thing as it was. I don't know, but it's, uh, you know, we're, we're back and it's very exciting. Yes. Enjoy it. Savor it. Don't waste a moment of it. So looking back over the years, I would love for you to describe a couple projects that you really feel challenged you, fostered your growth, are emblematic of Barbara Osgerby in really important ways. When I look back, I think there are a couple of really, obviously there are some key projects, but there are also projects which talk more about our process and the way that we see the world. Certainly, I, th I suppose probably the project that we're best known for is the Olympic Torch uh, project, which we started it in 2010, but it was for the London Games in 2012. And that was an extraordinary experience from start to finish, really. Well, I mean, what an honor to be able to represent your country in something that's so symbolic. Yeah. They don't come along very day, every day, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> what was the process like? I have never been involved in designing an Olympic torch, so I have no frame of reference. Yeah, well, it was slightly unusual for us as well, actually, to be honest. But so what happened was, go right back to 19, I think it was 1992. I remember watching the, I think it was the, the French Winter Games, and I think Stark had designed the torch. And I remember thinking at the time, I think I was even studying in Paris at the time, I would really like to, to do something like that. You know, imagine how, you, you know, to be able to represent your country in design would be extraordinary. Anyway, fast forward then to whatever it is, 
25 years or something to 2007 and I think it was 2007 when London was awarded the games I remember saying to Ed I think we were in the back of a taxi at the time we've got to do the torch wow yeah it was literally that conversation and then we were looking out we knew it would have to be a competition we knew they wouldn't just be able to nominate somebody to do it so we were then looking at spent the next kind of couple of years looking with an eye out you know for the competition to be launched and in 2010 the London Organising Committee did, in fact, publish uh, a request for people to submit expressions of interest to design the torch. You know, obviously, we were delighted and immediately got our bid together and submitted it, uh, along with a thousand other design companies and designers. And I think, Ooh. from what I understand, yeah, there was this process of sort of e- editing the submissions for over a period of weeks. This from is a thousand. the Olympics of design. It's l- exactly, but without a, at this point, we're not really doing anything. We're not running or even drawing anything. We just we were just being whittled down in the background without us knowing. So they'd got down from a thousand firms down to fifty or so, and then we had to put in more information, and then that fifty went down to twenty five, and down to ten, and then finally they chose five designers who could design the Olympic torch. And those five designers were each brought in to the headquarters of the London Organising Committee for a day where we were given this thing called um, an immersion session where they told us about all the things the torch would have to do. So first of all, a little bit about the history of the, of the Olympic Games. They gave us lots of stuff to read to find out you know, more about it. They then sort of presented us with this kind of performance criteria of things it had to do. First of all, we had to also make 8,000 of them plus 2,000 for the Paralympic Games. And these things had to be to withstand all sorts of weather conditions. They had to light at, um, you know, 70 mile an hour winds, had to be, you know, able to light at sub-zero temperatures, these incredible criteria. It had to be something that was obviously iconic for the Games and, and, and carry meaning and narrative since the, the the torch relay itself was going to go on for 70 days as it sort of ran around the country. We knew we had to imbue the torch with meaning and, and references so that people could talk about it whilst they're actually on TV. So we had this kind of immersion day and at the end of it, you know, they said, you know, we would like you to come back with a, a design and a manufacturing method statement. And we were like, of course, we were sort of, yeah, we were like, yeah, great. Of course, the of problem course. solving part of you is lit yeah, up right it's now. It's already going right now. And then, <laughs> yeah. and we were thinking, this is great. You know, we're going to have, I don't know, a couple of months to do this and we'll come back. And then we were sort of said, sure, yeah, thank you so much for your time. We're really excited about the project. When would you like us to come back? And they said, Friday. <gasps> what? So, yeah, it was. No. I think, I think we had a week. I think it was a week or 10 what? days or something. It was insane. It's insane. It was insane. <laughs> we, but of course, you know, this goes right back to the beginning, I suppose, of. Uh, us working together, Ved and I working together, and us saying, of course, to things which were frankly impossible <laughs> yeah. because we didn't know what else to say. So it was a, of course. And we went back to the studio with the team and didn't really sleep for the rest of the week. We designed and thought and created and researched. And finally, uh, you know, on the Thursday night, we had something which we really, really believed it was the right thing, the right answer to the pro- the project and we were on the first shift in the morning to present back to the olympic committee at eight o'clock in the morning on the friday so we were the very first and it was extraordinary actually we really believed in what we'd done it was one of those ones where which happens really infrequently when you just know you've got it mm-hmm. yeah 
I'm so excited. <laughs> so, we, so we went into the say to you know I don't know if we went to bed that night anyway, but we had everything together. We got into the um, the presentation on the Friday morning, and everybody was there. There was the room was packed full of people, you know, even people from government. All the stakeholders were there for the day to see the you know these five designers present their ideas for the torch. And we presented and I think obviously gave it everything we had left, which wasn't much, I suppose, after a week of all-nighters. But we, we, we presented as best we could. And then afterwards sort of said thank you and went down, went to the lift, I remember. And the guy who was in charge of the ceremonies came in to the lift because he was going downstairs for a cigarette. The door closed and he just looked at me and said, I think we've got our torch. I was like, oh my God, it was so exciting. He was so pleased. He was so, you know, I mean, so he was one of 26 people who had really enjoyed it and who liked the, the project. So we thought that's a great start. And, and then they, yeah, exactly. And then they kept us hanging on for a couple of weeks really well. So they, you know, whilst they checked out that we were a design team who were, had any sort of credibility and could deliver something that we said we could. And, and we managed to get through that. And then, you know, we, we won, we were awarded the project and it was just incredible. It was incredible at that point. That's such a good story. <laughs> yeah, it's true as well. You know, it was like, it was like one of those jump in the air kind of moments. Yeah, because I felt it. it. Was, looking back, you know, it's impossible to remember what what the world was like for us at that time. You know, it was like the Olympics mm-hmm. were coming. There was this huge excitement. You know, we were in the middle of, um, in that kind of period of austerity uh, after the financial crisis. And pe- there was a good deal of pessimism and negativity around. And actually to be, be able to do something which was going to really, hopefully, bring joy and excitement to people, even if it was just for a few weeks over the summer, you know, and to be part of that process was really exciting. And I guess also, you know, normally we design things that people choose to to buy. On this project, designing something which had to represent the games, the athletes, all the people running in the relay, but something that they didn't choose but that was given was an extra complexity, but a really exciting challenge. You know, to design something which had meaning for everyone, not just the sort of design world. Right. And it's not about a commercial prospect. It's as much as it is about a symbolism of hope and joy and camaraderie and competition and international celebration and intermingling. And wow. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. But also, of course, we were bloody nervous because we were nervous on so many levels. One, that we could genuinely deliver something so complex. Two, that the public would like it, that it would be well received. And, and three, of course, when it actually came to the relay starting, that the, the thing wouldn't go out, that it would actually work. Did it work? It worked, It right? worked. Yeah, it worked. I mean, it did <laughs> take all those boxes. We managed to make it. People really liked it. And it didn't go out. I mean, it's like another trinity for you there. The three, yes. the three wonderful trinities of success of a project. Yes. So, yeah, it was, it was really fabulous. But the final thing of the you know the evening of the opening ceremony whilst that when that torch arrived into the stadium was such a proud moment for both of us and you know it's a feeling that you just don't get from anything else you know to have to have that one of your designs center stage yeah and i don't know to be a beacon a literal beacon i suppose of hope and excitement for the for the entire nation was just wonderful Oh, I'm so thrilled you shared that story and i'm feeling very full-hearted from it and you also sort of painted a contrast between 
what it's like to maybe have a, a splashy product that everybody loves on the glossy pages of a magazine or at a trade show, which is also very great. Mm. But when it becomes an icon, like a literal icon beacon, as you said, of hope, people are connecting to it for a different reason. That's an interesting point, And one that, although not so dramatic, I think our process is really about, is so much more concerned with accommodating change in society or thinking about people not really as consumers, but as society as a whole. And a lot of the work that we do is responding to things that we've seen in in society, you know, how people are working differently, how, I don't know, how people want to buy differently. I mean, how the economy should work in the future. And and their values. The va- our values, this, this whole thing about consuming and, you know, is this really right? I mean, are we in the right job? Should we be, um, what's our role in this world where we don't need anything else? So I appreciate that you're you're talking about that because I do think that if you aren't making things, other people will. So it is incumbent upon you to make things in a responsible way. And what is that? We're defining those values. Society's defining them. You're responding to them. You're defining your own. Do you have a project that is emblematic of what you're talking about? I do feel like the last couple of things we've worked on have probably have in a way really characterize certain aspects of that certainly one of them the project we did with vitro it's called Softwork. we sort of came to the conclusion that the desk is dead actually i think that's probably the best way of starting it we realized that just around the time of the financial crisis the world of work changed because you know the smartphone was invented for start people were starting to work everywhere people were no longer tied to a desk and actually because of the recession a lot of people didn't have desks at all because they were now part of the freelance economy of these sort of nomadic people trying to work from home who we noticed were not just staying at home and putting the laundry on and feeding the cat and having another cup of tea but were actually trying to find quasi or pseudo colleagues in coffee shops and in the reception of hotels and so on, where people would congregate with laptops, cables sort of crisscrossing the floor, causing all sorts of problems for passers-by. And, you know, we realised that actually we needed to design something to accommodate that that sort of shift in, in society, something that kind of cleaned up the cables and actually gave people something decent to sit on. You know, we've been working with Vitra, the Swiss company, for a number of years, and we had this idea and took it to them to say, partly because we'd observed this way of being at, you know, at the Ace Hotel in London, when, which Universal designed 2014, you know, we had seen people, you know, having a coffee with people they didn't know because they needed to fill around other people to work and this kind of clutter of technology and people sitting on sofas, which were, you know, really cool sofas, but were really bad for your back to sit on for eight hours and, in a row. And we sort of said, we think there's a project here. We need to design something which is, you know, really comfortable, that's ergonomic, that enables you to work with colleagues, but maybe has power in it so that you don't have to have your cable trailing all over the floor. And maybe and maybe something which could become like an architectural element in the space so that you as a startup or you as a business in this kind of post-credit crash world could you know, start something up, but without needing to do an awful lot of architectural work to the interior, because you could just have this this sort of system that you could work on. Oh, nice. You could have the four walls, but then just bring in the furniture to do the rest. Exactly. Yeah, you just need a plug socket. You need one socket. Plug it in. Off you go. You've got 20 people working really comfortably. Job done. And the other thing, the thing I've always loved about Vitsu, you know, the shelving system that Dieter Rams designed. 
I always loved the fact that that system has grown with us and moved with us for over the last 25 years, you know, from a couple of shelves with books on to God knows how many rows of it now. You can pack it up and move it with you. And I always liked that kind of perfect utility of adaptability. And I think with the projects we've done with Vitra, particularly software, you know, we, I think we really embrace that idea of adaptability and, and also this thing about, um, I guess coming back to the sustainability point, how much mill work goes in landfill every year because it's sort of worn out, it's knackered. And I think the thing with, you know, projects like Softwork, which is sort of networked seating, it comes to pieces, you move it along, you go to your next studio, it doesn't have any impact on space at all. And it's ultimately flexible. So, and like everything that Vitra makes, it lasts forever. So it has an incredibly long life cycle too. So that's one way of tackling the challenges that we have. One way of looking at how society is giving us designers new problems to think about. Yes, through adaptability, um, repurposability, and ageless design, so that it has it lasts forever. Our job as designers is to make things which answer problems for people in a really beautiful way that you're never going to get bored of, that function flawlessly, and often over time reveal more about themselves to you. You know, there are things that you discover later or the things that you grow to love and you never tire of. And mm. I always think if we can make something that after you've finished with it, you know, it can be given away or resold or handed down. I think that's obviously, the, for me, that's the ultimate sustainable approach to creation of things, right? Yes. And underneath all of that is the, the fostering of long-term relationships as opposed to these shorter disposable relationships. I also think that when you have these long-term relationships in your life, in your objects, in your surroundings, they acquire meaning, they share more memories, they hold more life, and they remind you of who you are. And therefore, your whole life feels more rooted and real and reflected back to you. And if it's all disposable and you've only had it for a short period of time and it's cheap and you're going to throw it away, then your whole life also feels disposable and worthless. I literally couldn't agree more. One of the things that gets talked about a lot is is price. I think price is really important, of course, super important. But I think price, I was thinking it through, price is one of the really few things that we have to control overconsumption. And it's one of the things which, I don't know about you, but when, when, when I was a kid, you, you really had to save up for things. You couldn't just get them. And because you had to save up for them, you didn't have that instant gratification of just buying and consuming. It made you really think about things. Well, there was a big, long period of anticipation. There was work that you put in to make the money to save up for it. There was um, a constant rechecking in, like, do I still want it? So by the time you got it, it was now something you were invested in, going to take care of, going to feel pride in. So then you had really gone through that process of knowing it was the right thing, whatever the yeah. thing was. And I think that as a result, you know, you tend to hold on to those things and they do become those things that become meaningful for sure over time. And they also become the things that you try and repair and fix rather than get another one off and dispose of. Yeah, they become the things that you, the younger generation discovers and also values because they've um, been around long enough to work their way into the consciousness, into the sort of aesthetic consciousness that we share. Yeah, they have their own meaning over time and that, that meaning changes from era to era. And if you can make things which have, you know, design quality and functional quality and, may, and, and craftsmanship, 
then they become time travelers themselves, don't they? So one of the projects that I'm really interested in is a, a chair on and on for Emico that is entirely from recycled plastic, correct? Yeah, the on and on chair, Emico have really been pioneering these type of materials over over a number of years. And the on and on chair is made from recyclable PET. Well, actually, it's recycled in the first place. Recycled PET that's then yeah, endlessly recyclable. You know, we have, I think, one of the first examples in the world really of a chair that has endless endless life a little bit like aluminium over the years has you know got this great reputation for being endlessly reusable you know how a tin can can become a, a laptop and it's not really been the case with plastics until recently and this this plastic that emico have is um is able to do that so the chair itself is fairly s- simple in the sense that it's a you know it's a kind of cafe chair that can be used inside or, or outside it has sort of interchangeable seats uh, and and it shouldn't ever break because it's been tested to the point where it could destruct but hasn't but should you ever want to you know to recycle it you can and it can become something else it could become an on, another on and on chair or it could become any any number of other things and it's that type of research that is going into materials at the moment, which is actually really exciting. It's one of the reasons it's interesting being working in design at the moment, because, you know, the world and the sustainable planet or the sustainability of the projects mm-hmm. we're working on is, is being enriched by this sort of research and development across all sorts of different projects. So Emico is a really, really good example of that. And the chair, you know, I hope will be successful because it, you know, because it is genuinely ecological. And and made in the USA, actually. So that's- and I do find it um, kind of an exciting, I mean, it, that's an optimistic way to look at it, but it's exciting in sustainability, this research that's happening in materials, because it's it's focusing so much more on generative processes versus extractive. So we're trying to make the most of what we have. Right. So all this plastic that's already been manufactured doesn't require taking anything more from the earth, but taking what we already have and repurposing it into a super, as you say, enduring material that is also ultimately recyclable forever. So, And I mean, I think plastic is not great for some things. You know, in terms of the planet, it's absolutely awful to use plastic for single use, throw away, you know, mm-hmm. small component things it's not great it's rotten but actually when you take those things like yogurt cartons or coke bottles and you can make them into a chair then i think plastic starts to justify its existence because it becomes something that's super useful that can last for many many years so it doesn't have the same burden on on the planet as disposable plastic does so i think using using our business of creating objects that last a long time that are useful to kind of scoop up that waste, those, those products that are no longer needed and to reuse the plastic rather than burning it or putting it in the ground are fantastic. And actually Vitra have recently done a version of our Tipton chair that we designed in 2011. Vitra have developed um, the Tipton chair, which has exactly the same functionality and performance as normal plastic, but they're making it out of um, recycled plastic. In Germany, they, they, they've been recycling for decades and they're extremely good at it. And they have this thing, the system called the yellow bag, which is a reusable waste program where things like yogurt pots go into. So it's where polypropylene is recycled. And they're so good at it that actually Vitra managed to take this 
this this waste from from domestic waste or post domestic waste and actually mold it pretty much directly into Tipton chairs. So it's called the Tipton Re, and it really is uh, extraordinary because you know they, it's made of a hundred percent recycled propylene, which in itself is a hundred percent recyclable. So a little bit like the on and on chair, it's this, it's the same concept of scooping up these kind of small pieces of polluting plastic and condensing them and compressing them and remolding them into things which can have an incredibly long life. Oh, that's got to feel good. It's really good. And I mean, it's quite funny, actually, on the Tipton Re, when you look closely, it's kind of speckled and occasionally you can see like a tiny little bit of lettering from a yogurt pot. Oh, that's so, so fun. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like, like archaeology. Eggs. It's like archaeology <laughs> yeah. in your, um, in your own furniture. <laughs> so it's fantastic. And so it's really great to be, you know, working at that sort of the vanguard of that. This has been really fascinating, and I want to thank you for sharing, you know, your life and your and your work and your purpose with me. This I feel really close to you, Jay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, me too. And it's been, yeah, I think we could carry on for forever. Really, there's so much to say. Luckily, Ed's already done the heavy lifting, <laughs> so probably your listeners are thinking, oh, do I really want to know any more about Jay Osbeville? <laughs> oh, stop it. No, this was really wonderful. As a studio, we're going to continue to do work that, you know, hopefully redefines the boundaries of design. And I hope that we can come back and have another conversation in maybe in a couple of years time when we've done some new work, which is really exciting to talk about and equally as challenging as some of the things we've done in the past. Absolutely. You have a lifetime membership. I'll talk to you whenever (laughs) you're ready. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To see images of Jay's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.